The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and boy, the Chicago White Sox have mailed it in in 2022. After getting swept at home to Cleveland, the White Sox proceeded to get swept again at home to Detroit. Detroit, the last place Detroit Tigers. And the White Sox scored a whopping six runs total over the weekend. They are back below 500 again at 76 and 77. They are 35 and 43 at home. And the Cleveland Guardians have clinched the American League Central for the first time since 2018. With the White Sox mailing it in, we decided at Sox Machine to do the same. But instead of quitting, we're going to answer all of the questions in the mailbag from our listeners. This is an all-PO Sox show, and joining me to help answer all these questions is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and Jim, uh, I guess we'll get started with the White Sox will not be the 2022 American League Central Champions. Can you believe it? I can. (laughs) <laughs> like I'll answer that. I can <laughs> given the way they played, given the way they crumbled. Yes. Uh, it's thoroughly believable. But before we answer questions from our listeners and readers, I want to ask you a question. Cause I was thinking about it when it comes to Cleveland clinching and watching Cleveland celebration and a little bit of trash talking the white Sox way, you know, talking about the, the way they crumbled their way to a central division title, you know, making fun of Elvis Andrews or saying that, uh, you know, the Cleveland will be the one to give way. I found myself like surprisingly not caring that Cleveland won or that Cleveland is throwing, you know, the uh, yeah, rubbing the White Sox faces in it, like probably, you know, five, 10, 15, certainly like in the nineties, you know, when I was uh, you know teenager and then the Indians were great, uh, the then Indians, um, I would have hated it. I, I really treated the uh, Cleveland as the number one rival and really despised them and uh, hated to see any success happening to them. But I found myself like not caring just being like, Oh, good for them. That was, that was kind of my, my response. And I was thinking like, if the twins made it, you know, I'm so amused and uh, 
enchanted by the Twins postseason losing streak that I never want to see it end. So I just I enjoy seeing their misery. But with Cleveland, you know, whether it's the way the White Sox lost or maybe it's because they're the Guardians now and you don't have to see like Chief Wahoo and the red face and the feathers like during a postseason appearance. And it's just like, oh, it's a new era. And it's, you know, hopefully, you know, fans will be able to let it go. But I found myself like not caring. And I, I tossed it to uh, Twitter followers just asking, like, you know, trying to gauge sentiment. And, uh, you know, I gave them three options. Like, do you hope they get swept, hope they win it all? Or is it kind of a shrug and you're rooting elsewhere? And rooting elsewhere took it at 48% or 49%. And then hope they win it all and hope they get swept were about equal. Hope they got swept was 25.8%. Hope they win it all was 25.5%. So it seems like a lot of fans are... Um, kind of following the same thing to where like, whether it's the way the White Sox lost or the way Cleveland just completely earned it over them. Like nobody, there's not a whole lot of detectable anti-Cleveland sentiment I'm seeing. And I'm curious, like what your thoughts are in terms of like, whether you consider them a rival or whether the rivalry is kind of on hold because the White Sox are their own worst enemy right now. The way I look at Cleveland winning the American League Central is that I tip my cap to Terry Francona. This was a phenomenal job on his part. Managing the team after coming back from sickness from last year, I had some serious questions if he was going to be able to last the entire season. I had serious questions about this type of offense that the Guardians were going to be trotting out. If it was enough to help out with their run prevention unit in the combination of the defense and the pitching that they have. But he figured out what buttons to press. There were some lean weeks for the Guardians during the 2022 season. But everything is clicking now in the month of September, and we are seeing the potential of this Guardians team where they can be quite dangerous. And that's where I give a lot of credit to Francona. He's always been a fantastic manager. This is one of the better jobs that he's ever done. And Cleveland earned it. This isn't something like in the American League Central Central in June and July, we were wondering, okay, who really wants to win this division? Because that was a serious question at one point, Jim, because it just seemed like Mm -hmm. everyone was struggling and first team to 85 wins will earn the American League Central. That's true in one part, but now it seems like Cleveland's going to win 90 plus games this season with the way they've been playing in September. And I think that would surprise a lot of people before the season. If you ask, like, who will win more than 90 games in the American League Central, I would almost assume it would be unanimous back in early April, Jim. Everyone would say the Chicago White Sox. But now I think mm-hmm. the Guardians have a chance to win the Central at like 90 and 72 on this season. And they earned this. And a cap tip to Terry Francona. And I'm in the shrug category. Let's see if this continues in the postseason where they will also face really good right-handed pitching. And does this contact speed-oriented offense carry over to October when we know very well in the last five years ball go far team go far the teams that out homer their opponents in the postseason win and we saw that last year when the atlanta braves upset and shocked everyone on their way to winning the world series the guardians really are not that type of team unless they suddenly become that type of team jim in october uh they've been a surprise so far let's see if they continue those surprises 
Yeah, I think if I'm rooting for Cleveland to flop, it's mainly more to embarrass the White Sox. Like, see, you know, they weren't that good. You just blew it. Like, and things need to change. Like, that's really the only reason why I would feel any specific Cleveland antipathy, you know, just aside from like, you know, historical rivalry. But the way it unfolded this year, yeah, just I find myself more concerned with just whether the White Sox can overcome all their flaws than really thinking about anything the Central is doing in particular. It's going to be a weird offseason, maybe a dramatic offseason, the American League Central, except for Cleveland, unless this is Terry Francona's last hurrah. He has hinted that he is not going to be able to physically keep managing a baseball team, that it's getting tougher and tougher for him. Is this the last hurrah? Yeah. Nobody really knows. So maybe we could have multiple managers being replaced in this division. We're already seeing multiple front office executives uh, needing to be replaced. New direction for teams. It's going to be a pretty dramatic offseason for the American League Central. From a Guardians perspective, just keep riding this wave because while there is so much to look forward to, For that ball club, especially with the prospects that they have and being the youngest team in Major League Baseball and achieving all of the success, can they continue it if Terry Francona decides to retire after 2022? That that would be the big question for them. Yeah, I think if they won it all, then maybe he would retire because like he would have led the Guardians to their first championship in forever. And, you know, what more is he going to do? Like, what more can he do? Uh, you know, is it worth putting his body through it when he's achieved really the ultimate goal? So, you know, perhaps that's another reason to root for Cleveland to uh, pull it off just because it might prompt a change. Uh, whereas like if he's just on the cusp of getting there with a team that still has more to offer, uh, I, I think he could probably dig deep and continue going on for a couple more years at least. Well, let's get into the questions. Yeah. Yep. You ready, Jim? Yep. All right. So the first question that we have, and again, all these questions come from our Patreon supporters. As always, thank you guys for your continued support. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, you could do so at patreon.com slash machine. First question comes from Chef Eric, and it's timely. And Chef Eric is asking, what are your guys' thoughts on the Bob Nightingale report on Tony LaRusso's future outlook? It seems like everybody is coming back next year. And no one has learned anything. But there's also a new Bob Nightingale report that came out Sunday morning stressing that there is a deep divide within the White Sox front office and what to do with Tony La Russa. And there's already a new name, an old face, that's being linked to a possible White Sox managerial hire. So, Jim, let's start with your thoughts of what Bob Nightingale is reporting about the White Sox. I don't think it told us anything new. I think it's the, you know, what we thought, which is basically, well, I would say the, the funny thing is saying deep divisions because I think the divisions is everybody against Jerry Reinsdorf and Tony La Russa. That's my guess. You know, maybe there are a couple weird holdovers there, but in terms of people who count or should count in the decision-making chain, I can't imagine anybody is thrilled that La Russa is there. And I think like, I kind of picture like a, 
uh, an 1800s political cartoon, like a Thomas Nast thing to where like you have like a teeter totter and everybody in the organization is on one end of it and Reinsdorf and like a, a comical bags of money on the other side of it and, and La Russa and they're just laughing. And then they're, you know, I'm thinking also the onion uh, car- political cartoonist where the Statue of Liberty is crying in the background. Like that's, uh, I think, uh, what it would look like right now in terms of just, you know, the deep divide, which I think is just more like one guy doesn't want to. That's really my read on it. The idea of Bruce Bochy, former Padres, former Giants manager, won three World Series titles with the San Francisco Giants. The fact that his name is coming up again as a possible replacement of Tony LaRussa if LaRussa is either bumped to the front office or he is let go by the White Sox, which, by the way, LaRussa is owed $4 million for the 2023 season. That is guaranteed uh, no matter what the White Sox do. To me, it's a bit funny, Jim, because you would be replacing a 77-year-old manager with heart problems with a 67-year-old manager that has heart problems. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my biggest question was, can he do it? Like, it, with Bochi, it's not so much like a... I don't have the age-related concerns that I do with Larusa, just because, like, it wasn't even so much an age thing with Larusa. It was, like, how far removed he had been from the game. Like, Dusty Baker is, what, like, five years younger than Larusa, something like that. And he's, you know... He's somebody who might be criticized for being, you know, old and you know, out of touch, you know, theoretically because of his age. But he was somebody who was engaged and engaged in the people in the game and wanted the job. Like he wanted to keep working. He wanted to keep proving himself. He wants to win a World Series. Like he, uh, he, you know, he got fired. I think wrongly from a few different jobs. Like the Reds and Nationals are worse off after he left. Like he got was kind of the scapegoat for some, uh, you know teams that were weaker than they seemed because Baker was a good leader. Um, but he wanted to keep proving himself and he was there stumping for jobs. Whereas Larusa had to be coaxed out of retirement by Reinsdorf to make it happen. You know, I guess to, you know, to make this white Sox reunion happen. And, you know, there wasn't any proof that he wanted to be back in managing, you know, especially like managing any team to where he's really studying the league and its trends and ready to take on any job. Like he had to be, uh, you know, attracted and, and lured to this specific job. And I remember his, like, you know, his, his pregame or not pregame is, is a, a post, uh, hiring introduction, official introduction. And he couldn't name a current White Sox player besides Tim Anderson. He's talking about Chet Lemon. He was talking about Roland Heeman. He was talking about like all these, uh, guys who had been part of the White Sox organization in the eighties. Uh, yeah. And in the seventies, but he didn't have anything to say about like, you know, Luis Roberts, Jose Abreu. Like he just, yeah, he was just not engaged with the current team with Bochi. I think like, you know, he was managing recently enough and he, you know, he had achieved enough with the giants to where like, he didn't have to keep going the way like Terry Francona might think he has to keep going in order to try to get his team over the hump. Like he had achieved, you know, three championships in six years, basically like, yeah, it's, you know, great. Uh, you, you can't do anything more than that. So it's, uh, you know, he's somebody like, if you wanted to come back, if he wanted the, you know, if he wanted this White Sox job and he was ready for, you know, baseball in 2023, like, yeah, I'd be open to it. But can he do the job would be my biggest concern. And I think what people are trying for those that are in the support of Bruce Bochy is that he is coaching Team France for the World Baseball Classic. But I advise that's very different when you are coaching Team France in the World Baseball Classic. 
That's a couple of weeks, maybe a month commitment, not the marathon of a 162-game season and a very stressful job with the Chicago White Sox because there's a lot of pressure that if he were to be brought in, the White Sox are not rebuilding. They're going to try to bounce back and contend again. And if they fail again, you're going to feel that stress. You're going to feel that pressure. Can your body physically handle it? So we'll see, Chef Eric. Bob Nightingale, of course, has very good sources within the Chicago White Sox. So we're starting to get a little bit more insight on what's going on within the front office and what the thinking's happening at 35th and Shields or at least in the Zoom calls or IMs that they have within the workplace. But I'm sure there'll be more to unfold regarding Tony LaRusso's future with the Chicago White Sox and the White Sox front office future in itself, which is great segue to our next couple of questions here, Jim. Our next question comes from Azen Rec, and Azen Rec asked, what question would you want to ask Rick Hahn at his season-ending media availability? Mine is, why are you still here? That's a good one. Um, I think mine would be more of a comment than a question, but it'd be like, Cleveland wasn't even trying. Like in, in 2022, like the White Sox had lined up everything so carefully for this moment since 2017. Cleveland was using the winter to take a step back and they beat you and beat you soundly. Like how, you know, if I had a question like how or why, but the comment should be enough of a question in terms of like, what are you doing here? Yeah, I, I think one question would be, how would you assess the 2022 season, Rick Hahn? And just keep it that simple and just see what his actual thinking is and why they they failed to meet expectations. I'm sure a lot of it is going to be, well, we had a lot of injuries. You know, a lot of teams have injuries. A lot of teams have injuries. And I would even argue that the White Sox have not necessarily handled their injuries all that well. The whole Luis mm-hmm. Roberts situation, I think, has been handled terribly the fact that he's seen three hand specialists and then they decide that when they're officially out of it, oh, now he's going on the injured list when he could barely swing a bat. Like, you're not even taking care of your own guys. So it, that's what I'm expecting is that the White Sox are going to blame injuries for the reason why they missed expectations. It's part of it, but it's not, I think, the chief reason why the White Sox failed this season. So I think mm-hmm. I would just keep it really simple and more of an open book of these types of questions just to see what traps Rick Hahn walks himself through. And that brings us to our tandem questions here, continuing the conversation about Rick Hahn. Javier asked, is this it for Rick Hahn? A dysfunctional $190 million payroll team has to be it. If Hahn doesn't get fired, then nothing will. And then Alec wrote to us, at this point, what's the most likely way the White Sox will justify everyone in the front office keeping their jobs or just running it back next year? I'm 95% sure this will happen. Yeah, I mean, that's the, uh, you know, that really is the two ends of the spectrum or the, the, the two moods is this can't go on, this will go on. And I... Yeah, if I have to bet on the White Sox changing, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take that bet. <laughs> I just want to, uh, you know, steer clear just because, you know, the the money is always on the status quo when it comes to the White Sox. You know, when any meaningful change, you know, they might change a scouting director here. Or they might promote the previous scouting director 
up the chain. You know, that's that's a move they like to make. They they change hitting coaches. Um, they change, you know, minor league assignments sometimes. But really, when it comes to the core decision makers, you know, in the front office, managerial level, every change is like years overdue. And, you know, with, with Han, I mean, that's years overdue. You could have made the change in 2016 after you know, his first rebuild blew up and made, you know, national headlines and international headlines twice in one season for just how comical the failure was. Uh, but, you know, if Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't want to trust anybody else with his money, you're stuck. And I think it's a case where, you know, they might be stuck. The question I have is, you know, the thing you've mentioned before in previous podcasting that, you know, if this $190 million payroll is contingent on the White Sox having some postseason revenue and they aren't having postseason revenue and who knows what like the season ticket base will look like if the White Sox fans are disenchanted and say like, ah, you know, I, I think there'll be opportunities to get postseason tickets in the second half. I'll wait and see about how good this team looks before, you know, ponying up for full season, um, you know. What can he do with less resources, you know, with less money, with, uh, you know, a farm system that's better, that has more to trade, but is, you know, still short on top 100 guys, really short on, um, you know, system altering trade type material. So it's, you know, that, you know, that might be another question to ask him is like, you know, what's your payroll going to be next year? And I'm sure he would say like, well, we're still determining that we're having meetings. It's the postseason before blah, blah, blah. But just, you know, that's the question I have in my mind is just how can you trust him to, you know, do more with less when he can't even do more with more? So in 2008, the White Sox increased their payroll from 108 million in 2007 to $121 million in 2008. That was the highest opening day 26-man payroll until the White Sox exceeded that in 2021. God, that is so pathetic. Uh, So that was the fifth highest 26-man payroll back in 2008. The following year, they cut it down to $96 million. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, it got, I'm sorry, I misreading this. Then it bumped up to 2011. It got up to 127.7 million in 2011, and then they would not exceed that again into 2021. So the White Sox like never carried a 130 million dollar payroll on opening day until 2022. And after the 2011 season, they cut it by 30 million dollars in 2012 where they carried a $97 million payroll. So when the White Sox have pushed chips in in the payroll, like in 2008 and in 2011, the very next year, they have cut payroll by 25 to $30 million. And I'm thinking that is a pretty good total, Jim, where, yeah, in the Sox Machine offseason plan project, maybe $170 million payroll budget makes sense. And you bring up a great point. Rick Hahn, you couldn't build a winning team with the highest payroll in franchise history by a lot. Mm-hmm. How should we expect you to build a winning team when you got a cut payroll? Yeah, which gets to the other question, which is, you know, how would the White Sox defend bringing him back? And I think, you know, it'd be, well, we, you know, we want to see what it looks like when you have a full off season and a stand, you know, no lockouts, um, you know, 
able to contact our players and get them all on training regimens so they stay healthier and we'll have more to prove next year as if like you know so many other teams didn't have the same issues like the Tampa Bay Rays you know the Twins had more injuries than the White Sox but the Twins look like the White Sox right now so you can't really point to the Twins and say there's a team that had a lot of injuries because they might be drafting ahead of the White Sox next year but the Rays have had probably you know, as many injuries and as costly of injuries as anybody and they just keep finding ways to get by and that's a case where yeah I mean it's uh you know I know that Rick Hahn has likened the White Sox, the Rays before and saying like, you don't need to spend a lot to do a lot, but you know, he, the White Sox have never been good at doing a lot. And they're not very good at spending. So there you go. (laughs) A little double edged sword there. I I think the biggest justification Alec and Javier on why Rick Hahn will get to stay around is what Jim has been mentioning all season long is that at the age of 87, which that's going to be the age Jerry Reinsdorf turns in February, he does not want to learn new faces. So this is your front office until you have a new chairman or chairwoman take over for the Chicago White Sox. That's why Rick Hahn gets to keep being part of the Chicago White Sox organization. I will leave the door slightly open where the White Sox get weird again Rick Hahn is not the general manager, but he's some type of special advisor. And that has Kenny Williams promote from within to take over as a general general manager role. But Rick Hahn's still part of the think tank, which has anything yeah. really changed? Not really. It's just that somebody else will be answering questions from the media and it won't be Rick Hahn. <laughs> He might have like a clever idea for paying somebody, you know, like $20 million every 20 years in the final year of their deal. <laughs> Uh, but good question so far guys we're on a roll here all right next question comes from andrew siegel and andrew wrote to us i think of all these factors contributed to this dismal season and i'm wondering how likely you think they are to be a problem next season the flurry of injuries poor managing weaker than expected bullpen and a poorly constructed roster p.s i gotta say i think i was more into the rebuild seasons than i was in this one at least there was a glimmer of hope at the end of the tum- tunnel back then. Yeah, I mean, to address that last point first real quick, like this was a very difficult season to write and talk about because everybody was hurt. Like just you couldn't say, you basically had to just say like, well, hope he gets healthy. Or, you know, why is Lucas Giolito struggling? Because he's missing two miles per hour. Why is Lance Lynn struggling? Because he's, you know, he was just hurt. Um, you know, why is Yohan Makata struggling? Because he doesn't have legs. You know, basically you'd say that for most position players, their legs aren't there. Uh, they have a hamstring injury. They have a knee injury, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to discuss you know in a, in a way that just wasn't like how can they work around the injured players and why aren't they working around the injured players with more you know proactivity but among those four factors i would probably think like the flurry of injuries might be the the biggest one just because that also ties into something you didn't mention was which was depth yeah i guess it's poorly constructed roster also counts as depth but i think like just the flurry of injuries just you know counting on that front line of talent and then not having like real uh, clever way to work around when that flurry of injuries happens, unless like the White Sox do truly move on from the Tony La Russa administration, even Miguel Cairo and just, you know, overhaul the entire thing. And even, you know, maybe get some new trainers in to where they just work a whole lot better hand in hand, um, you know, helping turn the roster over and making sure that, you know, 
the players who are on the 26-man roster all can play, or if they're going to miss time, they'll only miss like two days and we'll be back at it. Like they just played shorthanded so often, and, and you know between Grandal and Roberts and you know Pollock for a little bit of time, and then uh, you know Grandal just you know so many you know Makata just Jimenez for a certain amount of time. You know Andrew Vaughn had no legs for a certain point. Like six guys out of nine uh, being allowed to jog to first base because they couldn't run uh, without hurting themselves. Like. That's the point where I, I just don't know if the White Sox have handled it honestly yet to understand, you know, if they've really gr- grappled with, you know, why they had so many guys get hurt for routine plays and then allowed that injury to cloud like two to ten weeks of baseball. Like that's really the, you know, the, you know maybe that's my question. It's just like, why would, you know, yeah, another good question for a con, like why did, why, why did the White Sox make such a huge mess of injuries and why do they play shorthanded so often? I think out of those four, the flurry of injuries, poor managing, weaker than expected bullpen, and a poorly constructed roster, which of these are going to be a problem next season? I'm thinking I'm leaning to poorly constructed roster, Jim. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some injury prone players, but the weaker than expected bullpen, I'm kind of lumping into the poorly constructed roster. And again, it's about yeah. where you are spending your money and building this team. The, the, there's so much money into this bullpen and they're not even a good unit. Liam Hendricks is good. Ronaldo Lopez is good, but everybody else, there are some serious questions and trying to get the ball to those two guys to close out a game. Jake Diekman sucks. Okay, I do not want him around (laughs) on the White Sox next year. That was a terrible trade. And I don't know if you've noticed this, that Reese McGuire has found his uh, home run stroke with the Boston Red Sox, and he's got three homers now, so he has hit as as many home runs with the Red Sox as Yasmani Grandal has hit with the White Sox this year. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. But the poorly constructed roster, Andrew, is the problem that everyone's going to be having to face when you start bringing up your Google Sheet or your Excel doc to start building out your 2023 offseason plan project and try to build a 26-man opening day roster, you're going to look at what is currently there for the White Sox and say, boy, we got to cut here. We got to cut there. How do you do it? Like This is going to be a very difficult task, and I think that's going to be the problem carrying over to next year is that – even though the White Sox have all these roster problems now and we could see the roster problems clearly, some of these problems are going to have to carry into next year. Be, one reason is, you know, v- very difficult contracts to move. Like no one's taking on Yasmani Grandal's money. No one's taking on Yoan Mikata's money. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to get a great return trying to trade a Lucas Giolito that's got a five plus ERA. Those guys are probably coming back and they take up a lot of money. Uh, a lot of money that you could spend elsewhere to make the team better. So that's why I'm leaning towards the poorly constructed roster over the flurry of injuries because maybe luck is on the White Sox side in 2023, Jim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Basically stay healthy. That is the White Sox plan A. If they stay healthy, everything will be all right. But Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Humber Pie, and Humber wrote to us, positive thoughts on players who took a step forward or any good developments you see in the majors or minors, coaching staff, rainbow cone, try to keep it positive. <laughs> How many rainbow cones did you have this year? Only one. 
Yeah. Only one. It is, uh, as you saw during the broadcast, the kid in the bleachers that was having the rainbow cone and it fell off the cone, completely missing the ball and landed on the ground. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I've gotten the cone before at rainbow cone because when I make orders there for parties, like getting the rainbow cake or getting like a, a big quart of the, the, mixture of rainbow cone to serve it at parties while you're waiting they'll give you a free cone based on how much money you spend Mm -hmm. and it is a race against the clock eating that thing and it can get messy real quick so i only had one knowing that i'll be focusing more i'm trying to focus more what's happened on the field than my ability to consume this rainbow cone makes sense um yeah, to answer the question beyond ice cream, like I think, you know, Johnny Cueto doesn't really count, but he was a lot of fun. Like I'm glad he was a White Sox at some point over his career. Like I enjoyed that experience immensely. And I think, you know, without reservations, um, you know, it's a shame that Danny Mendick's story could have been seen all the way through because that was a really nice development. And, and uh, you know, especially for, uh, you know, a 22nd round draft pick who out of upstate New York and, you know, Massachusetts, like not baseball territory. It was, it was fun to see that happen, but I think probably the biggest development or like the, the, the minors actually, you know, the, the, the records were terrible. The pitching depth is kind of thin, but the minor league system, especially I would say like the top 10 prospects had a pretty good year by and large. Like, um, yeah, I'm looking at my top 10 from preseason. I had a uh, Colas Montgomery, Berger, Vera, Jose Rodriguez, uh, Cespedes, Brian Ramos, Romy Gonzalez, Gilbert Sanchez, Sean Burke. Like, of all those players, like, none of them are doomed, or like, none of them took like drastic steps back. Like, Vera's kind of a disappointment right now. And Sanchez is kind of, you know, fringe E. And, and Gonzalez had like a, a lost season almost before coming back. Like, the, but none of them were lost causes. A lot of them made positive strides. And if like one guy didn't develop, like Davis Martin can fill in that uh, spot. Like uh, Lenin Sosa can fill in that spot. Like, you know, they had uh, a number of surprises that, you know, help supplement like a, the top dozen, uh, even if like you are disappointed by Vera or Sanchez or what, what have you. So I think, you know, the White Sox had a thin farm system, uh, and very light on top 100 talent, but I mean, like Colossa Montgomery, like they now they're in top 100 list. Like they they turned their immediate potential into legitimate prospect stock. So you know that's great. Um, and then you know they have a number of guys backing up. Like Ramos might crack some top 100 lists. Like you know it, it's you know Project Birmingham was you know notable because there are so many bodies there of players who are legitimately interesting. So I think. You know, as you know, as lopsided or maybe as low minors as that, um, you know, central development in the farm system is, and you know how little it can help, like the the twenty twenty three White Sox on opening day, like it was good and it will help, and and uh, whoever is making trades for the White Sox will have more to deal with from the farm system than they did last year. One of my New Year's resolutions for the Chicago White Sox was to develop a top one hundred prospect. They developed two Jim mm-hmm. and Colson Montgomery and Oscar Colas. So they achieved that. I will also say some positive thought thoughts uh, or development. The dart Davis Martin mm-hmm. surprised Sebi Zavala really surprised. It took a step forward. I was impressed by Tanner Banks. He pitched better than I was expecting. 
for the White Sox this season as a 31-year-old rookie. And I'm going down the list just trying to find other positives. And Dylan and, Cease, you know, I think just taking another step forward after his big oh, step yeah. forward before. Um, and then like Lopez, you know, finding a role, finding a home, you know, uh, you know, repeatable success. Like, you know, on the, on the 26 man roster, you know, it's probably Cease, Lopez, uh, Martin Mendick. And that's I guess, when you were mentioning Danny Mendick, who's been injured for months, like it, you know, you're getting pretty thin, but yeah. I will say though, the post all-star break, Aloy Jimenez, has been very good for the White Sox. And he does look like someone that could help anchor the lineup. Yeah. So breaking that down for his season, again, the question is going to be, can you trust Eloy Jimenez to play more than 130 games next year? And for whatever reason, asking a player in their mid-20s and feeling like that's a tall order. But I'll also add that to the list that I think that's a positive development that here we are still in late September and Aloy Jimenez is not going to play a hundred games, but he still might lead the white Sox in home runs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a problem. Uh, (laughs) uh, But I'll add that to the, the list as far as the, the good development. So there's, there's stuff there. Humber pie. If you're trying to be optimistic and look at the positives, there are definitely Things to be positive about what happened in 2022 for the White Sox is just that, unfortunately, the negative stuff is outweighing the positive in this season. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but more questions to be answered from our loyal listeners next. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to this special edition Sox Machine podcast, the all mailbag edition. We got more questions to answer. So next comes from Scott Milburn. So after we are trying to be positive, answering Humber Pie's question, Jim. Scott wrote to us, how can the bullpen be fixed with the various bad contracts for 2023? What can be done with other bad contracts like Lurie Garcia and maybe Yoan Makata for 2023? 
I think the bullpen, you know, the contracts are pretty much intractable when it comes like, you know, that, that's why the Jake Diekman move was so frustrating because it's like adding another 3.5 million of 30 something reliever who is on the decline. Like, no, like, uh, it was funny. I was reading my, my post about that just to see what my first impressions were and just remember and like first, you know, first look, I was like, Oh, you know, a catcher, they you know, might have to let go for a reliever that they could maybe use from the left side. And then I, then I was thinking about the 3.5 million more and just like, the more I think about it, the more I hate it. So I'm, I'm glad that I, you know, I was on the right side of uh, history there, but yeah, I mean, when you add him to the mix and like, he, there isn't a whole lot that can be done. Like it's nice that Lopez has ascended into something that seems repeatable. So that's good. And that's something that, you know, maybe they can work in more to, you know, be more of a setup guy, be in front of, um, you know, Liam Hendricks. And so Graveman doesn't have to be the only right-hander of consequence. Like Jimmy Lambert's been okay. Um, yeah, but I think, I think the White Sox just have to try to find like NRI types, like non-roster invitees, bring them to spring training, live arms, you know, work on their pitch lab the way like the Orioles. I think the Orioles are probably like the, the team you look at for a, a, a team that just built an entire bullpen out of no names and whole cloth. And it was just, they, they found guys with uh, one good pitch. They found guys who could throw like 95 or higher and they just managed to, uh, find some success stories of like, okay, throw this pitch more than you ever have before. Or let's tweak your hand position. Let's, you have a really good spin rate. Let's uh, change where you work in the zone. Like, I think it's going to take some concentrated work on, you know, Ethan Katz's part and just their entire pitch lab pitching apparatus part to try to dig deeper into those like waiver claim territories and see if you can, you know, do some Katzel fixums because I think they have enough, uh, fixed pieces in place between Hendricks and Graveman and Bummer and Lopez and Diekman and Kelly, like to where like the true projects that, you know, you're looking to cut a walk rate in half, or you're looking to get a guy who struggled in triple a to see if you can get him in the majors by like may like, you know, there's more on, yeah, I think there's more room for cats and other pitching coaches to, uh, take on those kind of projects because you know every other guy in the bullpen basically is what he is for better or for worse and like bummer like he's fine just needs to stay healthy uh graveman's fine if he's not pitching on back-to-back days kelly had moments had stretches and it's just more a matter of will he be healthy and if he's not healthy then you have to figure out alternate plans but while everybody's healthy hopefully in spring training that's hopefully time to where the white Sox can try to work on these reclamation projects and live arms and see if they can shape them into something that could become a weapon in a couple months. Yeah, there's not much you can do about the Yohan Makata contract. I think Makata is still going to be on the White Sox for the next two seasons, and you're hoping that offensively he can be approved. Yohan Makata right now is on track to be the sixth highest paid third baseman in Major League Baseball in 2023, the fifth highest in 2024 in his remaining two years with the White Sox. So he really needs to step up his production to merit the type of money that he'll be making with the White Sox over the next two seasons. Lurie Garcia, do you cut him and pay him for the next two years to be a triple-A player elsewhere, Jim, or play in a totally different league? I think so, or at least by, like, May. You know, maybe you don't want to put, you know, Yes, give give him a spring training to see if he's healthy, if he can uh, you know be fully back because you know that was you know not the biggest problem with Garcia. I think just being misused was a huge problem for him and, and caused a confidence crisis. But since they're paying him, and since like nobody is you know Romy Gonzalez had a hot start, he's tailed off. Like you know 
Sanchez has been meh. Uh, Sosa, he showed that, you know, calling to the majors when they did was premature, but he might be close. Rodriguez might be close. A whole bunch of guys might be close. But, like, if you don't want, if you'd rather allow them the time to spend a little bit of time in Charlotte in April and then force their way in the picture, then having Garcia there is just somebody who knows where he's supposed to be uh, helps. And then after that, like, you know, if he still looks the same, still is like a struggling to get to 600 OPS. Uh, sure, cut him loose because you have a whole bunch of guys who can take on that job, especially like say if Danny Mendick is back and fully healthy and looking like he was last year to where he was a a competent bench player. Like they can they can move on. But, you know, now I would say like if Garcia is just taking up a roster spot that somehow through a series of trades, they now have a 13 man position player crew that Garcia is the 14th best on then sure you know cut him then and, and you won't feel too bad about it but like in a world where like he is the last man on the bench and nobody else has truly proven better than him then i can see him going into spring training or april with him and then just see like is he a lost cause thank you scott for your question our next question comes from richard smiley and richard wrote to us what's the elvis andrews contract status has a 2023 15 million dollar vesting option already kicked in uh, the vesting option is not an issue for the White Sox. When the White Sox acquired him the way they acquired him, uh, they just only had to pay him the prorated amount of the league minimum. They did not take on uh, the uh, rest of Andres' contract and the obligation. So he, they can play him as much as he wants, and I think that's why one reason why they haven't really been inspired to rush Tim Anderson back from his hand situation is because if Anderson you know, were there, then they could say, we're going to play Anderson, see how he looks. But without him there, as we're watching with the middle infield depth, there really would be no reason to play anybody besides Andrews at short. You know, He's got something to play for. The White Sox need his competence. Like, you know, it makes sense to play him as much as possible the rest of the way. Richard, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Paul Riker. And Paul wrote to us, do you think there's a certain amount of roster churn that keeps the competitiveness at a certain level, and the White Sox just had too many return players from the year before. I feel like I'm enabling Paul, who he goes by Stryker uh, on the on Sox machine, and and you know he loves the offseason plan project. He comes armed with uh, five detailed trades, and he's been thinking about it for months. He loves the churn, so I feel like I'm enabling him a little bit by saying like. Uh, yeah, churn is good because that only inspire him to turn over like, uh, you know, 15 of the 25 six man roster, you know, going into next year. But I do think, yeah, I think when Adam Engle, somebody like him is played, you know, retained all the way until he's a non-tender when he's like a fourth outfielder at best. And like, ultimately, like a lot of this time he's been in the roster, he's been like a fifth outfielder. Like that's probably a case where he didn't need to be in the White Sox for as long as he was like Larry Garcia didn't need to come back on a three-year contract. Like he covers a lot of positions. Yes, but he doesn't do any one thing particularly well. And so if you're looking, if you're starting him and seeing like, you know, what does he bring for one position for anything longer than a week? Like not a whole lot. And so I think, you know, when, at some point when you're just bringing guys back who are okay, like Danny Mendick had a nice year, you know, this year before the injury, but like he was another guy I, I kind of throw into that. Just when they keep coming back and they don't really offer a strength, it does reflect like a level of just settling or a lack of ambition to where like they're not looking for somebody who might be able to turn into somebody better or might be able to offer the White Sox a legit 
plus tool or a plus plus tool that you know when you know it's a late game situation or you know if they're facing a lefty or if they're facing a real just you know real mashers real you know speed burners you know gold glove defenders like you know angle was that guy at one point but hasn't been for a few years now like that's a case where just you know the more you keep those guys the less you time and 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 space you have to try to see if you can develop somebody better so yeah i i think you know even to the uh you know starters even like you know this whole glut we're talking about with first base and dh like it probably would make sense to just flip some guys you know take a more of a jerry depoto approach like you know i I think depoto with all his trades for all the trades he made and sometimes i thought it set back the mariners a few years like he made so many trades that if one didn't go well it's hard to fixate on it because he could remember everything he did and it would be it would take like you know the uh uh, barbecue uh guys to who have logged every single depoto trade to come up with like a quick top five list of his best and worst trades just because of the sheer volume like when rick Hahn makes a trade and it doesn't go well we fixate on it because that was like the one move he made to solve a problem like at the deadline trading for jake deepen was his only move it made the team worse for next year and we have to think about it we have to like stew over it and uh just you know sit with it so i think there is value even at the major league level of just making trades to turn guys over you know it, if they might be redundant or if they might, you know, have offered the best, like the Nick magical trade was a very good proactive trade before, you know, he got hurt again and he started becoming a super two and, you know, he started earning our money. Like it was good to trade him when they did. It was bad that they traded him for Craig Kimbrell. And that's another case too, where if they just let Kimbrell go and said like, we'll find somebody else. Uh, then that would have been a two month misread. Nobody would be missing magical that much and life would go on. But because he exercised Kimbrell's option, it took so long to turn him over for AJ Pollock. And now they can't turn over Pollock probably because Pollock will probably accept his uh, $13 million option instead of taking the $5 million buyout. Like, he'll be around and hard to move. So just the way, you know, the White Sox get attached to players and the way they, you know, kind of box themselves into these multi-year commitments to players who are unremarkable makes it hard to have that kind of churn that, you know, might ultimately result in some missteps here and there, but offers the chance to find guys who are better and have more upside and just have more ambition in general. Well, as you mentioned in our last episode, Jim, that the White Sox need someone that's a little bit more creative that is building the roster. This is where, to answer Paul's question, yes, they need new insight into this front office to be more creative, to be able to do this roster churn. Because we also have touched on this, like that was the lesson learned from Theo Epstein at the end of his tenure with the Chicago Cubs is that you get too attached to these guys. And that's my concern if you keep every one of the White Sox front office is that we don't see enough roster churn to help improve this team going into 2023. So Stryker, you should be in love with this upcoming offseason because there is an absolute need for roster churn. I can't wait to see your offseason plan project. We'll see if the White Sox actually follow any of your ideas or follow suit and try to churn a big part of the roster during this offseason. Our next question comes from Doug Wirtz. And Doug wrote to us, who should start at shortstop, second base, and in the outfield? Why not find out what you have down in AAA? I can understand why you don't bring up Oscar Colas because you don't want to put them on the 40-man roster until after the Rule 5 draft. I'm guessing since he mentioned Colas and not bringing him up right now, I imagine he's talking for the rest of the season. But I think with Andrews at short, 
Second base, you know, Roman Gonzalez is playing right now, you know, for a lot of it and not playing that well. You know, Josh Harrison has played sparingly. Larry Garcia hasn't played at all. So I think that's more or less the proper order. You know, maybe Lenin Sosa could come up for the last, you know, nine games and just see what he has and see if, you know, he's been hitting well at Charlotte. He's learned something from his first stint. Like he, he's already failed once. So, you know, they've already used the option on him. So, you know, there's no harm in really bringing him back. That might be the one thing I would tweak because with Mark Payton up, uh, I would like to see Peyton get every start against righties and even against some lefties because his splits were actually favorable against lefties. He played pretty much every day and played well. So I think, you know, just for the sake of novelty, for the sake of putting the roster out and, and, and running guys out there who want to play and have something to gain for playing the way like Andrews, his play shows that he has something to gain for playing. Peyton would have something to gain for playing. Put him out there in the outfield. You know, but I think, you know, uh, you know, Gavin Sheets, you know, he benefits from the experience. Andrew Vaughn, you know, he's having a, a, a kind of a rough second half and a rough recent stretch, but he probably benefits from playing six months and understanding what his body needs to have more at the end of the season, like, you know, what to leave in the tank. Uh, I think the outfield is more or less set, but I think, yeah, just play Peyton as much as possible. Uh, you know, Sosa would be the only guy I might add from the outside because, you know, he's already on the roster and there's no harm in bringing him back and just, you know, understanding what major league pitching has to teach him well doug thank you so much for your question our next question comes from mark jontry and mark wrote to us who are the minor leaguers of consequence if any and which a rule five decision needs to be made this winter uh of consequence it's brian ramos jose rodriguez and yulbert sanchez um you know all of them should be protected you know all of them you know i, I think rodriguez might be the one guy who you know theoretically might be he might be able to sneak through but because he had the uh you know injury teams might be able to stash him on the injured list for half the time and then you know, bring back a rehab stint slow play that and all of a sudden you just need to buy a couple months by having him the roster but i think it's pretty straightforward and there's room to cut on the 40 man to where you can store rodriguez ramos and sanchez and be fine you know among guys who are on the outside looking in like Cade McClure has had a decent second half. He would need protection if the White Sox, you know, wanted to keep him. Andrew Perez, if they're looking for a lefty, he's been okay at uh, AAA and would require protection the way they protected Bennett Souza. But as Bennett Souza shows, like, there's a reason why he was in AAA and I called up to help the major league team. And there's a reason why they trade for Jake Diekman. So if they lose him in the real five draft, like I would be surprised if it were consequential. But those are two guys who, you know, might be off the radar, but... Uh, or on, like a faint blip on mine. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your question. Uh, we have a tandem question here again, Jim, with Patrick and Mark Cope. And Patrick wrote to us, are the 2022 White Sox more representative of the 2021 Minnesota Twins or the 2021 San Diego Padres? Which is worse? Do you have a better comparison? And Mark Cope wrote to us, is there another team that invested in a full rebuild that didn't do it that well? Basically, is there a prior example of what we're seeing and where it may go? I think, you know, the Twins are kind of close because they did have that big season where they, you know, just dominated the Central and then they fell back and haven't really been able to repeat it. I think they're bringing back Rocco Baldelli and that's a bit confusing to me because I think he's, you know, the last year uh, has shown his limitations as a manager and just, you know, how, you know, he's not great at adapting to the talent he has on hand. But, uh, yeah, I'm thinking if there's a team that's close, I think the Padres are just too, you know, there's a team that does a lot of churn. So I think, you know, their problems might be a case of just, 
not yeah, yeah, maybe over moving versus under moving. And also like they had the, you know, maybe there's a little bit of an analog with Jace Tingler being the manager and just not being able to command such a veteran heavy clubhouse that wasn't playing well, but maybe the Phillies are the, the analog for the White Sox for a team that just, you know, did a rebuild. You know, they, they had Matt Klintek as a GM couldn't quite get it going. They they couldn't develop a pitching staff. Uh, the they had some uh, players who just were kind of you know whether they're scapegoats, whether they're just kind of short on baseball smarts. You know, just you know made a lot of bad mistakes. Uh, a lot of you know, didn't draft that well. Didn't use their you know top draft picks for players of consequence. Ended up with a lot of similar players. And they ended up, uh, you know, booting Klentek out of the role, brought in Dave Dombrowski to try to finish it off. And you know, his his uh, way of going about it was just like, OK, we're going to just stock up on sluggers and score a ton of runs and hope that that overcomes, you know, the the the, the weak defense and the you know, bullpen issues we always have. And, you know, it's been clumsy the way they've gone about it. But I think they're going to be a postseason team. Uh, you know, I, I find them very entertaining for the chances they've taken. And they have some, you know, good you know starting pitching and the, the bullpens and adventure but that's probably the team I look at and say that's the White Sox but you know I think the difference might be that the Phillies have shown the willingness to you know invest in Bryce Harper have those run those big payrolls for years in a row and hope that the faith from the ownership level will be rewarded whereas you know as we've talked about before the White Sox are kind of one and done when it comes to splurging if that one uh, does not turn into any kind of meaningful postseason run. I'm trying to think of other comps. Does the Cincinnati Reds make sense as a comp? Kinda. Um, With what we've seen recently, I think the Reds are closer to the White Sox first rebuilding attempt, in which they just try to make it happen soon, and just you know they they had some veterans that didn't quite match, and they kind of you know hampered their draft stock and such. So they just you know they. Some teams can do that. Some teams can, you know, sp- you know, accelerate their timetable with spending. But the Reds, I don't think they had the pockets deep enough to sustain that kind of strategy the way the Phillies can uh, sustain that kind of strategy to spend their way over the hump. Like they got a little bit, uh, you know, you know, the way the Castellini's tell it, uh, the Reds ownership over their skis. You know, some might say like, you know, that they just didn't want to spend and. That's probably true too, given the way that uh, they had to stick their foot in their mouth on opening day. You know, when uh, they talked about you know where are Reds fans going to go to watch baseball, like yeah, they're taking their fans for granted, <laughs> you know, out and out saying so. But yeah, I think there is a little bit of a similarity uh, there as well. And I guess we'll see how much the White Sox cut payroll to where maybe the Reds are closer than I think. Yeah, I'm thinking like the 2010 through 2013 Reds, Jim, when Dusty Baker was there. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, mm. won 91 games in 2010. They won the Central. Uh. Won 97 games in 2012. Won the Central. They made it into the wild card in 2013 against Pittsburgh, but lose that wild card game. And then from 2014 all the way to 2019, they finished below 500. Uh, 2020, in the COVID year, they make it back into the postseason. Uh, at a 31 to 29 record and in 2021 they try to push more chips in and they finished 83 and 79 and this year they might lose 100 games uh, depending on how they finish in 2022 so that's kind of what i'm thinking here is because they rebuilt for a really long time like the reds were just not a relevant franchise 
until Dusty Baker's third season that they had a really good four-year stretch where they reached the postseason in three years. But since 2012, it's not been pretty with Cincinnati. So maybe you're right in which, like, the first rebuild makes more sense. Well, I was thinking of like this current Reds, you know, the, their attempt to try to get, you know, into the central, uh, you know, when they got Castellanos and got Moustakas to, you know, um, help supplement the, the Senzel and the Winker, you know, core they're trying to bring up and you know they got over 500 but in and they did make the uh postseason in the COVID year uh Sonny Gray was another guy they added so they they made legit moves to try to you know add major league talent to their team before they were maybe you know ready to do so and I was hoping it would work out better because you'd like to see teams follow that more you know not like the Orioles like the the Orioles uh you know they're going to come up short and you know had they spent anything in the winter, they might have been able to get the few wins they needed in order to you know compete more. Like they were ahead of schedule, but they didn't give themselves that chance. Like I was hoping the Reds would be maybe that uh, you know just that yeah, I guess that example for a team that feels like it's on the cusp to try a little bit to uh, you know add a guy or two that doesn't like break your payroll or compromise certain positions for more years than you're willing to, and see where you go with it. Well, this was a good tandem question. Thank you, guys. Our next question comes from Lou Powell, and Lou wrote to us, how might the season have unfolded differently had Oscar Colas started in right field from day one? I don't think he was quite uh, ready for that yet. He had a wrist problem at some points uh, during the first half of the season. So, you know, I think the White Sox have played him more or less appropriately and cautiously and like the best thing for his career, but... Had the White Sox called him up at some point in late August, I would not have been opposed to it. I would have understood it. Um, you know, it would have been a case where, like, I really don't like that an emergency has forced this decision. Like, I would have rather just had it been like, uh, the White Sox are leading the Central, and they're looking for that left-handed bat to maybe really make them a dangerous and flexible postseason team. And it would showcase ambition versus being like, we're desperate, Colas might have it, let's give him a shot. Uh, that's the only reason why I didn't want to see him called up, but I would have understood it like by late August when... Had he been more or less mediocre at the major league level, just like everybody else, they could have stored him on the roster for the rest of the season and not burned an option. Um, that would have been fine. But I think overall, more or less, their timetable for their promotions has been on point. A little bit cautious, but I think fine for the individual development. And, you know, it's a case where uh, he should be in good position for next year. Yeah. If they started him opening day, uh, it's a case where just the precedent they've set in right field uh, would make me dislike it because it's just, you know, continuing to get by and not really solve that problem. But I think in terms of the player, he might have something to offer by April. He might be like a volatile type talent, but, you know, I, I think the highs and lows might actually offset versus the lows dragging everything down. I think Oscar Colas will start, be the starting right fielder for the Chicago White Sox by June 1st, 2023, Jim. Like they yeah. may give it a couple months for other internal options, to hold the job in right field, but I've got a feeling right now that give Colossa a couple more months in AAA, see how he starts in April and May, and if he continues to torment AAA pitching, then, yeah, it makes sense to bring him up and see what he could do in right field for the White Sox. Yeah, I'd say, like, Mother's Day feels like the best kind of, you know, if you're setting an over-under, June 1 almost feels like a bit far farther back, so I would say, like, maybe... Yeah, middle of May. 
then I would still go over. I would still go over and yeah. say, yeah, June 1st seems about right. But we'll see. Maybe the White Sox will surprise us. I mean, he's been hitting very well. So if you're not going to sign anyone, you know, go after Aaron Judge, then sure. Let's give Oscar Colas a shot in mm-hmm. right field. Uh, our next question comes from Mark. And Mark wrote to us, Here's my question, guys. If Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't care about winning, why should I care about his team? Record payroll means nothing when the owner puts doing personal favors that significantly and negatively impact their product before the best interests of the franchise. If Tony the Russo and the front office are back at it, is the ultimate F you to White Sox fans. I know full well that Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't give a damn about what I and many other lifelong White Sox fans think, but the franchise would be, would be better served if he did. No, it's a good question. I think one that's up to the individual. Like there are some people who like, I would think like yeah, the one awaiters, they get a lot out of supporting the White Sox because of the community. Just like they like being around other White Sox fans. It's part of their summer. You know, some of their money might be go- more money than they like might be going to Jerry Reinsdorf, but they, you know, get a lot of, you know, personal fulfillment out of the connections they make in the bleacher, you know, or I should say in the seats, you know, at, uh, around uh, Bridgeport and such. And, you know, that works well for them. It's a case where like, if you are fed up with the way the White Sox have been run, you know, it might make sense to like, I'm thinking like with Blackhawks fans, like when at the end of the Bill Wirtz period, when, you know, before Rocky Wirtz took over, like you couldn't follow them on, uh, TV at home. He had to work to pay attention to how well they were doing and that they were, you know, getting rid of fan favorites to where like you couldn't even like, you had to really work hard to know who was on the roster in the first place. So fans just didn't think it was worth the work. And then like when they got good and you had a whole bunch of fans come back in, you know, some of the hardcore Blackhawks fans were saying, you know, calling them bandwagoners or saying now it's impossible to get a ticket and so forth. But like, they basically inspired Blackhawks fans to be bandwagoners because they just made it so hard to follow them that why would you bother? You know, why would you put that much work into it if you had better things to do or if you have a family or if you have, you know, travel you want to take or just other, you know, hobbies or things that take up your time? Like, you know, it gets to a point where like this is too much work. And, you know, I think that depends on just whether people feel like it's affecting their, uh, you know, well-being, you know, some people might be better off taking their chance. And I don't blame them for it. People checked out and came back in a couple of years, uh, when the White Sox were making a deep postseason run, really wanted the White Sox to, uh, put together a good product in late October before they got back. Like I would not hold bandwagoners, you know, against anybody because, Ultimately, like when, you know, as Mark said that Jerry Reinsdorf has not really shown any interest in making fans happy, then yeah, it's, it's a one-sided relationship and, you know, fans can withhold their attention. That's really the one thing they can do, uh, whether, you know, that actually sends a message or whether it's for their own personal good, um, you know, that ultimately hurts us, I think. And that's why I always say like, if you want to spend money, yeah, if, if you want to limit your White Sox spending, save it for us. And I say that, you know, tongue in cheek, but also like, yeah, it's, I'm kind of shooting ourselves in the foot here, but ultimately that's kind of how I look at it. Like uh, bandwagoners for the White Sox, to the extent that they exist, uh, I wouldn't slag them because Jerry Reinsdorf has made it very hard. And I'm going to be amused if like the White Sox, you know, whenever the White Sox 
make their next big move or, uh, you know, should they sign that elusive hundred million dollar contract and Rick Hahn or whoever is in charge says like, well, this really shows Jerry Reinsdorf is serious about winning. Like, no, it doesn't like just, you know, anytime you can, they, they talk about how much he cares. Like, no, you can just roll your eyes and, and do whatever gesture, uh, you know, uh, hand related gesture you think ultimately, you know, captures your mood and, and shrug it off because, you know, I think of any development this season, I'll go back to the, uh, you know, the question uh, talking about like positive developments. This is negative development, but a positive one in terms of fan sentiment, like the sell the team sign was great. Like that ultimately was a very, I think, a positive movement for White Sox fan relations uh, in the opposite direction. Like the fans relationship to the team, making it very clear we're like, oh, we know what the problem is uh, and we're not going to accept anything that kind of talks around it or tries to puff up Jerry Reinsdorf as anything more than what he is, which is like out of touch and not willing to, you know, make the necessary investments or the necessary overhauls in the front office to make a difference. And I, uh, you know. I enjoyed that moment, even if it, you know, is a reflection of something that isn't enjoyable, which was the White Sox baseball in 2022. Everyone brags that Jerry Reinsdorf is incredibly loyal to his employees, but for any successful business, you need to build brand loyalty with your customers. And if you don't have Mm -hmm. that loyalty with your customers, you will have difficulties with your business. And the White Sox are going to face some of these difficulties with their business with just how upset White Sox fans are and many of them not renewing season tickets or sending very angry emails that they have to put down a deposit for a 2022 postseason plan just to keep their seats in 2023 or be at risk of losing where their seats are with their season tickets and being you know having the fear of being moved if they don't pay for a deposit plan there, there's a lot of negativity right now, especially for White Sox season ticket holders, to the White Sox. And the fact that the White Sox have done a very poor job when it comes to fan loyalty, it's something that really stems from Jerry Reinsdorf also having poor fan loyalty over his years as an owner. So when he does pass away and everybody brings out the obituaries, that's the one thing that everyone's going to make note of, Jim, is just how he was very loyal to his workers, but he was not very loyal to the fans that supported his franchises. Our next question comes from Greg, and Greg wrote to us, Hey, Jim and Josh, longtime listener, first time dad here. I had a son this week. My question, should I raise him as a Dodgers fan? And Greg Nix, I hope you and your wife and the little one are doing fantastic. That's excellent news. And Jim, you're kind of in this uh, situation here uh, with Mm -hmm. uh, Minnie Margulis. So what should Greg do here? Well, right now, um, I'm... Yeah, I'm thinking back to like my childhood and some people know this, some people might not know this, but my first favorite team was the Oakland A's because, you know, that was around like the late 80s. The White Sox were not exciting. The A's were. And for like me growing up, you know, playing with, uh, you know, action figures and, and superheroes and whatnot, like the A's were very much like an action figure-like team. They had a whole bunch of guys who were fun to imitate in the backyard, like Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire and Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart and Dennis Eckersley. And I just enjoyed watching the play. They were like, this is exciting. This is fun. And, you know, I had a whole bunch of, you know, 100 Jose Canseco cards and, uh, you know, just 
had you know a whole bunch of A stuff on my wall. Uh, I was a White Sox fan. Like I like going to games and seeing them do well. But just I was invested in the A's. And like the first ball player I met was Andre Dawson. I think at the Chicago Auto Show, and he was nice to me. He signed an autograph. Like he answered my dumb questions. And you know like so I was an Andre Dawson fan uh, because that was a nice first experience. You know and I was like seven years old and uh, you know my dad was a White Sox fan and you know everybody in my family's White Sox fan. But my dad wasn't like a like the Cubs when they were good in 89, like I was interested in them just because like it was first postseason baseball in Chicago that I'd witnessed. So that was kind of neat to see it get big in October. And so like I paid attention to it and you know, my dad never said anything about like, you can't root for the Cubs. You can't do that. Yeah. Just, uh, you're a Sox fan. Like he just, he was hands off about it. Uh, and you know, ultimately the Sox got good. You know, the A's fell apart. Uh, you know, so the White Sox got interesting and ultimately I gravitated towards them uh, as my number one team. And that's where I've been till now. And so I think, you know, when it comes to my son, like, you know, I'm hoping he just likes baseball to begin with. So that's more or less how I'm going about it is just like, Hey, let's see if you like baseball. And, you know, given the, you know, discussion we just had with Jerry Reinsdorf, like if the White Sox are in a position where they make baseball not look fun, I'm not going to force that down his throat and say like, no, you have to like this. Like if he, you know, say if Nashville gets a team, if I'm still here and Nashville gets an expansion team and that's what it's exciting. Yeah. Like load up on Nashville stars stuff. You know, just, you know, let's go to games. Let's, you know, uh, pick some favorite players and get some cards. Like, you know, that's, I think, you know, how I'll kind of, you know, go about it. Or if like the Dodgers happen to be great and he's entertained by, you know, whatever players they dig out of like the 38th round when there's only 30 rounds and, and, and that's their star player. Now, like, sure. You know, just whatever excites you about baseball follow. And then like, you know, perhaps just your exposure to the White Sox ultimately leads you back. And, you know, if, you know, the White Sox might not be his number one team if there isn't that geographical pull that he's experiencing firsthand, like I had, but, you know, I imagine it'll still be like a number, you know, two team or number three team, like my friends, uh, upstate, like, uh, you know, Mike and Maria, they're upstate New York. The Maria's fans are uh, Yankees fans. Mike is from Pittsburgh. He's a Pittsburgh fan. Ultimately, their son is a Yankees fan, but he likes the Pirates too. Like he, you know, he has Pirates swag and he goes to games and such, but the Yankees are way better and way more exciting. And he's a big time baseball player now. And like, if you try to make him like the Pirates at, uh, you know, any and all expense, like he might not be, he might, you know, be into football or hockey. Like he might not like baseball so much. So that's kind of how I look at it. It's just like baseball first. And then we'll see, you know, where the natural ties of White Sox fans through generations like, get them. And, you know, like with, with me, it brought me back to the White Sox. And so I would just trust that, you know, even if it isn't his number one team, like the White Sox will be probably too omnipresent for him to really, you know, avoid and dislike and disregard and not care about. Well, Greg, we're so happy for you. Best of luck trying to find sleep. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. For basically the first three weeks is uh survival <laughs> survival. <laughs> and thank you to everyone that submitted questions. This in this episode of the socks machine podcast. Thank you guys again so much for our Patreon supporters that submitted all of the questions in this episode, thanks to your support, we can continue doing what we do at SoxMachine.com. And if you enjoy our work and you want more, you can help support us as well at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the, both of the podcast and the website. 
And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to receive it. And you can sign up for as little as $2 a month or save with an annual subscription. Again, at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. So that's it, Jim. That's the mailbag. And uh, we'll see in how this week goes as the White Sox are on the road to Minneapolis and in San Diego. For all those White Sox fans going out to San Diego, look forward to seeing you guys there. I'll be there Friday and Saturday. Again, we are sitting in Section 320 for the Saturday, October 1st game between the White Sox and the Padres. Yeah, I'm sorry that game has no stakes attached to it. The good news is the beer selection is great at Petco. There's that. If the game's that bad, just drink like we have been. All season long. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the hotels are walkable. So there you go. Yes, that's very true. The hotels are very walkable. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.